Well, it's always fun to start a new series, and uh, as I was looking at the book of 1 Samuel, it's interesting, the, the original scroll is one, so we know it as First and Second Samuel. Um, when they interpreted the Old Testament into the Greek uh, Septuagint, they broke it into two, and so it's First and Second Samuel, and we keep that today for simplicity's sake because it's so long, um, but really it's, it's Samuel, the book of Samuel that we have the first installment this year. Maybe we'll do the second Samuel in 2028, something like that. I don't know. We'll see. But uh, first Samuel today. And the theme that I've given to this series is in search of a righteous king. Key word here, and we're going to see why that's so important. We don't just need a king. We need a righteous king. And this points us to Christ, the one king who is indeed righteous, the longing of all uh, anticipation for that which would govern in the right way from the right heart. And really the pointer in every failure of all of the kings, and there are many failures in the kings in Scripture, uh, that continues in our day, does it not? We need a righteous king, a righteous king, and in Jesus we have one. So I uh, want to give you a bit of a, a stance. Anytime you come to a new book, you want to know where you're at, found this really cool chart of redemptive history. This is the work of God from creation to into the future. And uh, I, I like these little logos, right? It's kind of a fun way to, to move through. You can see where the arrow is. We're, we're in the period that is a transition period between the judges, a quite dark period in Israel's story, and the, the kingdom, uh, the, the establishment of, of, of kings in Jerusalem and uh, from there. So a period of history significant for its transition, and Samuel is the one who God raises up to be the final judge and the king maker. Interesting role that he's played in, in history. So think Exodus, okay, we've had the Exodus, God has used Moses and the people have been brought out by the mighty hand of God, and then the golden calf, which led to the wandering for 40 years until that generation died off, fell into the sand. Uh, I've been to that area where they wandered, it is bleak, it would not be a fun place to camp out for 40 years, I guarantee you that. Um, then came the generation behind them that was led by Joshua that went into the land and the conquest of the promised land took place, which then led to a period of the judges, which lasted roughly somewhere around 330 years. Okay, So in, in the movement of these things, you can kind of see where we're at here um, as we move now into the kingdom years. Notice a few things, though, in the book of Judges. I want to have this as context because we're still kind of in that zone as we meet this story. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And all that generation were gathered to their fathers. They all died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. This is a disaster, an absolute disaster. Look at how quick that took place. How 
quick this took place. To see the mighty deeds of God as a conquest took place, and the very next generation rises up and wanders off into the weeds. That's how Judges begins. This is how the book of Judges ends. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, not in the eyes of the Lord. They weren't concerned with the pattern of of right and wrong that God had clearly communicated to them. They did what they wanted. In many cases, they called evil good and good evil, and that continues in our day, does it not? I prayed as I was driving in with grace this morning, close the doors of apostate churches, Lord. Close the doors where today a gospel is proclaimed that calls evil good and good evil. Close them down. We stand against false teaching and false claims. And yet how toxic it is and how easy it is to slip in and steal away. These are barren days for Israel. Spiritually, there is barrenness. There's not fruit like they were called to to follow and obey and walk in the Lord. 1 Samuel then records in the first half of the book the life of Samuel, who is the last judge of Israel. The second half shows us the life of Saul, uh, kind of the, the first king of Israel, but the guy that when he's done, you're just like, ugh. That was rough, right? You know, not what they were hoping for. We're going to get in and see all of those verses as we move through. Today, dedicated to Yahweh. That's the sermon title I've given. Dedicated to Yahweh. <clears throat> as is the, it's true today and it'll be true for most of the year. We've got a ton of verses to move through today. So buckle up. Let's do this, okay? Dedicated to Yahweh. We'll begin in verses 1 through 8. Dysfunction and heartache. Let's go down just a tad on the microphone, Katie. Thanks. Dysfunction and heartache. This is how the book begins. There was a certain man of Ramathem, Zophim, on the hill country of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and an Ephrathite. He had two wives, and all of a sudden we're like, ooh, big mistake, okay? <laughs> That's just as setting up the scene. The name of the one was Hannah, most likely his first wife, okay? And the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Amazing how much content in two verses. The author of this book, who we really don't know who it is, um, there's a lot of guesses and stuff. We don't know who wrote it, but um, master storyteller has given us so much content right out of the gate. few things here, Elkanah, Hannah, and Penina. Um, You have a man who is probably quite well off to have the resources to have two wives, but the dynamic is likely that he married Hannah, who he loved dearly, and they were not able to have children. And in this day, if you cannot have sons, the lineage is a huge deal. And, and the family line is contingent upon having sons. The land is also, as we see in the book of Ruth, which, by the way, happens in this time period. 
the book of Ruth, which you know establishes a clear connection to the genealogy of David, who would be king. That's 2 Samuel. Okay, so, so historical context here. This is all kind of happening. You see how important it is to have a son. So Elkanah takes Penina as his second wife, and she has lots of children. Polygamy in the Bible, fascinating study, just a note on this. It is not condemned, but don't, hold on now. Before we draw any conclusions, it is not explicitly condemned. It is clearly, implicitly condemned throughout, okay? In the garden, how many wives did God bring to Adam? One. One man, one woman. In the New Testament, what is the call as marriage is reclaimed from sin and its disastrous consequences? What is the call? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, that's not one man and a whole harem of women. No, it's one man and one woman. And, and wives, submit to your, your own husbands as unto the Lord. So there is a beautiful um, kind of book into this. The other thing that you see is every time Every time there is a man who has more than one wife, chaos. It's a mess. It's an absolute mess. And I guarantee that would be the case if I took another wife. <laughs> I Just ask my wife. My home would be a nightmare. Don't worry, babe. Now, this man used to go, Elkanah used to go up year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Okay, again, lots happening in here. We're learning a lot. First of all, I got to point out this. This is the first time in the scripture at this point that this title is used of God, the Lord of hosts. It's significant. Anytime, as you're reading through the scriptures, first mention takes place. This is a very Jewish purpose um, push. There's, there's a statement being made. So first mention, here we go. The Lord of hosts, or Yahweh Sabaoth. Yahweh Sabaoth. He is the Lord of armies, the commander, as it were, of the hosts of heaven, he is sovereign. He rules. He reigns. He oversees not only the affairs of men, but all of heaven is under his command. This is a, um, a, an almighty God acknowledgement. And so I love this, that, that, that he would say he would go up year by year to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts. Where would he go? Well, he would go to Shiloh. And uh, Shiloh was about 19 miles north of Jerusalem. We got to visit there um, when we were on our tour. We'll be driving past there, Lord willing, in September. By the way, our, our tour was postponed to September. I'm okay with that. Um, we're waiting for some Hezbollah rockets to kind of quiet down. And then we're going to go, hopefully. So here is Shiloh. It is a beautiful place. And after the conquest was done in Joshua 18, they brought the tabernacle to this location and set it up, and you can see why. This is a perfect location for the tabernacle to rest, and uh, they built structures all around it, which they're, they're continuing to do archaeological digs and discover artifacts from this time period in Scripture. Uh, one of my favorite stops, because as you can see this hillside, and then you picture 
God's people coming three times a year to celebrate the feasts that were commanded and ordained by God, think specifically of the tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles, the tent camping, right? They come and they camp. Now picture this hill covered with little fires burning at night. And then listen to the sound of God's people singing his praise. It's a natural amphitheater right there. And right in the middle of that, right there in in the dead center, is the tabernacle where the worship of God is to take place. However, during this time, God's people were in disarray. Their hearts were going all different directions, chasing after idols. And the, the high priest wasn't much to speak of. Um, we're going to learn more in the coming chapters about his two sons who served as priests. These guys were described as worthless men. They were depraved to the core. And Eli just like stood by and let it take place. This guy is checked out. He is not a great high priest, which again calls us to a longing for a great high priest. We have that in Jesus. We're going to learn more about Eli in the coming chapters as well. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. Now just feel this. You've got to feel this. This is a family moment. They're all together, and there's this huge group, all her sons and all her daughters, and his second wife here, they're at the table, and then here's Elkanah, and probably next to him is Hannah by herself, alone. Think of the dynamic that takes place here. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion. This is most likely during the peace offering when the the priest would get some and, and some would be burned and then the rest of the family would eat and celebrate and feast together. Hannah received a double portion because he loved her. Oh man, the dynamics that this, this creates. Everyone in the family notices this. Honor is given to Hannah and yet she has no children. And the love, the heart of the father is for Hannah. Just imagine some of those conversations. Hey, mommy, why does mommy over there get more than you? Well, that's a good question. You should ask your daddy, right? Because she doesn't have any kids. And look at what I do. Look at all the work that I've done around here. Look at the the job I have to keep up with all of this house. And, And she gets a double portion. Just imagine the enmity and the strife. He loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And underline that in your Bible. It shows up twice. That's not by accident. That's purposeful. Her rival, that is Penina, used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her, because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. There was mocking. There was belittling. There was just deep provoking of Hannah publicly in front of everybody was toxic and it was awful. Favoritism is shown, strife, provocation, all of these things going on. Now, you just ask yourself, look inside the heart of Hannah and ask yourself where she could go with that. I just, I mean, put yourself in her shoes. Where would you be tempted to go with that? Dark. Dark. 
you could get murderous thoughts toward Penina. You could get deeply bitter, angry thoughts toward God. And on and on. Think of the places she could have gone. God is gracious, even in dark days, to keep and hold and soften her heart. The Lord has closed her womb. The Lord has closed. Who is sovereign over the armies of heaven? The Lord, Yahweh. Who is sovereign over every single womb? The Lord, Yahweh. Just a word for those who may have struggled or continue to struggle in this place with infertility. Those who may not be able to have kids. Know this. God is in the mix. And He is at work in these things. Not every story turns out the way this story does. But know this. God never wastes pain. He never wastes pain. He has a purpose Even in the hardest things in life, he is at work. And he is there for you. He is sovereign over the womb. There are many moments in our lives where we come up against things that we cannot control. This is one of those areas where we have basically no control. Science can try and do this and that and the other, but ultimately, God is the one who gives life. She is desperately longing for a son. This is so hard for her. And this goes year after year after year. Think now of how many significant figures in your Bible experienced barrenness. It was true for Abraham and Sarah, wasn't it? What a mess Abraham made, right? Sarah was 90 years old when the Lord said, I'm going to open your womb. And I'm going to give you the son of the promise. 90. Why 90? God. He's making a point. This is, this, we're talking patriarchs here. Barren for 90 years. Guess what? Rebecca, Isaac's wife, barren for 20 years, who gave birth to another patriarch, who worked really hard and ended up with Leah. And then that shyster father-in-law of him, he worked seven more years and then he got his love, Rachel. Guess how long she was barren? 25 years before she had Joseph. And then the birth was so difficult, giving birth to Benjamin, she died. We're talking deep battles of desperation and patience and longing and faith. That's significant. The patriarchs all had wives who experienced years of barrenness. Elkanah and Hannah add to the list. Zechariah and Elizabeth. Think of this. Elizabeth, in her old age, just like Sarah, you're going to have a son. Her son, John the Baptist. God chooses to work in the midst of deep, dark trials and challenges. He is sovereign over the womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, Penina used to provoke her. 
she, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Can you imagine? You got a double portion here. All of these conversations, all the mocking, all the digs at the table. How are you going to eat? She wept. And Elkanah, her husband, he said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Okay, first question, bro. <laughs> Come on. Next question, why do you not eat? That's kind of obvious. And why is your heart sad? Seriously. And then he moves into a place, men, take note. This is not a great way to comfort your wife if she's sad and crying. Am I not more to you than ten sons? Hmm. Elkanah, zero points. <laughs> that just doesn't work. This guy, I, okay, let's just give him a little break. You can see his heart, right? You, he means well. Here's what he's not doing. He's not looking down on her, shunning her, treating her like garbage because she can't have children. He's loving her. He's trying, at least, to express his heart to her. He fumbles around, and like a lot of guys, I've been there before, like, that's a, he fails miserably, but he, at least he gives it a shot. Am I not more to you than ten cents? At least you get me. Oh, bro. Elkanah, zero points. Not helpful in this moment. Year after year after year. Now just feel this. This is long pain. Long pain. Long grief. Oh, the temptation of long pain is to turn away from God. To throw your hands up in the air and say, forget it. I'm done with this. I'm walking away. I can't do this anymore. Prayer and providence. 9 through 20. Prayer and providence. When I say providence, I mean purposeful sovereignty. The, the sovereign rule and reign of God is expressed in perfect wisdom and perfect timing such that his providence displays his perfections, his heart, his sovereign purpose in all that he does. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose, now Eli the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Now, note this. Where did she go? Where did she go? She went to the Lord. She went to the, she didn't go to the high priest even. She is praying to the Lord of hosts. And she is weeping. These are tears of grief. And I just, can you just hear this? Lord, you know, listen to the echo of these words. They're so mean to me. Why do they say this? What is going on here? How do I deal with this? What do I do? Please long for a son. The temptation to turn away is great. And know this. The enemy of your soul wants exactly that. When you hurt, when you don't understand, when it's hard, when you lose things precious to you, oh, his whisper, give up. He doesn't love you. He's not able. 
Don't look to him. She runs to him. Don't run away from him. Run to him in that place. Think of Psalm 62. For God alone, my soul, wait in silence. That's a statement, a sermon to his soul. Listen, soul, for God alone, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. Why? Because of him. I plant my feet upon him, and he is certain, and he holds me. On God rests my salvation and my glory. He is my mighty rock, my refuge is God. And then listen to the sermon that comes from that place. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart. Bring him your tears. Cry out to him. He can handle it. He is a refuge for us. Have you been there? You can't live in this world and not be in that place. He's a refuge. Run to him over and over and over. Hannah vowed a vow now. And she says this, Oh, Lord of hosts. I love this. She uses this, this title. Yahweh Sabaoth. If you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant. Listen to the humility of this request. This is not a demand. This is a request. If you will do this and will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. This is a vow being spoken in prayer. Now, just a word about this. I would just caution us, be very careful about vow-making to the Lord, about vow-making in general, right? How serious is the vow spoken on the wedding day? What a significant vow. But in prayer, be cautious about making vows to God because those vows are to be kept. They are to be kept. Why would she think of this? What, what is going on here? Well, it's the Nazarite vow in view. Numbers 6, 1 through 21 sets out um, a kind of a dedication, setting apart someone as holy unto the Lord and for the Lord's service. And this involved no haircuts or shaving. It involved no wine or strong drink. In fact, no grape products at all. Not the skin of the grape or the, the meat of the grape at all. They also were to avoid all contact with the dead. Those who had died. That includes family members. So burial process and all of the very, it's, it's not like as much in our day. You're, you're involved. You're doing this. But not if you're under a Nazarite vow. Why would she think of this? Well, there's a connection here that just jumped out for me as I studied. Samson. Samson judged during Hannah's life. Okay? He's gone now. But he was given to a barren woman. His mother was barren. And she dedicated him for life under a Nazareth vow. So that's why it was so significant when uh, Delilah chopped off his hair. He was, he was set apart unto service for God. He was raised up by God, a terrible judge, of, of, you know, character-wise, but used by God nonetheless in a dark time of Israel's history. And I think she's thinking now, Lord, 
not just for me, but for your people. Raise up a judge. Raise up, and if you give me a son, I will give him to you for your service, to bless your people, to shepherd, to lead, to judge, to help the mess that we're in. I love this in her heart. She's not just saying, my will be done. She, I believe, is expressing a prayer, your will be done. Lord, raise up a new judge. That is the vow that she makes. She continued praying before the Lord. And Eli, this uh, (laughs) not-so-great high priest, uh, observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved. This is at the point she, she is just in a deeply despairing and deeply dedicated, focused place. Her heart and soul is in prayer, and her lips are just kind of following along, but she's not talking. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And again, we're like, come on. Are you serious? Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. Okay, Eli, zero points. <laughs> Seriously, this is pastoral care 101. If a woman is weeping at the tabernacle on her knees, she's probably not drunk. She's pouring her heart out to the Lord. It's mind-blowing. This, this is just a revealer of how poor a high priest there was and the longing for a high priest like Jesus. Imagine if Jesus were there. Mary, why do you weep? Right? The love, the compassion, the care in his voice. He sees her. He doesn't accuse her of being drunk. Jesus meets the deficiency of every other man. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. I have been pouring out my soul. What great language that is. Pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. This is the place that she's at. This is the prayer that she prays. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Now, I was struck by that. I was struck by that. Here is a man who is not a great high priest, although he is carrying the title, who has totally misjudged something that should have been very obvious. And then he says a statement like this. Now listen to her response. Is her confidence in Eli at this point? His discernment? No, her confidence is in God. Listen to how it goes. She said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose in the morning and worshiped before the Lord, and then they went back to their house at Ramah. There is something that takes place in that exchange that the Lord lands in Hannah's heart. It is an answer. This this has gone on for years. She's been here for years, but this year was different. This year, the Lord gave an answer. 
and she trusts in him. And Elkanah knew his, uh, Hannah, his wife. That's biblical language for sexual relations. He didn't know about her. He loved her in that way. And the Lord remembered her. Oh, God did not ever forget her. But that is the language of he gave what he was holding back. He opened the womb that he had closed for that period of time in his providence and in his all-wise plan. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Hmm. Who does she credit? The Lord. It's not Eli, right? It's not her, right? Sometimes we talk about this in a weird way. Well, it's the power of prayer. If you say it that way, it's very easy to make it the power of me, the prayer. It's not the power of prayer. It's the power of God. It's the power of God. The reason prayer is powerful is because God ordained that prayer be a mechanism of ordination such that he would ordain the very prayer and bring about the result of the prayer in his sovereign plan. So pray, people. Pray, not because prayer is powerful, but because God is ordained to work through our prayers in power. Note that connection. I have asked for him from the Lord. I was struck by these words, in due time. Oh, how often our inclination is to change the due and scratch that out and just put in the my. Right? Lord, you don't understand here. I have a time in mind. This is when I would prefer. In, in my time, do this. In, in my time, please. I, I have plans, Lord. And the God who employs prayer in his all-wise providence says, in due time, child, trust me. Wait for me. And sometimes the answer is no to the prayer. I have something better for you. One of the things that struck me is what was God doing during the waiting? What was he doing in Hannah's heart while she waited? He was growing in her something of deep, deep faith, deep conviction to cling to him even in the darkest of days. She she was being fashioned and molded in the furnace of that affliction. And in due time, when she was ready and Israel was ready, think of that. Israel wasn't yet ready for Samuel, but, but in due time, when God had arranged things and it was, it was time. And then you're starting to think, okay, what about um, Boaz, right? And, and all of the connection with the lineage of David. All of that God is putting into place. He's arranging it all, all at, the, all at once. So in due time here includes all of this. Our God is sovereign in the details. His timing is perfect according to his all-wise plan. She names him Samuel, which literally means name of, but sounds, when you say it, like 
heard by God. And so there's this huge argument online about what does Samuel's name mean? It doesn't really matter so much. It's probably both, whatever. The point is, is she says, I named him Samuel because I looked to the Lord. I asked of him, right? Maybe she was doing a little play on words. He heard me. The God who hears and answers. Hmm. Now, treasuring and trusting. Let's see how this story concludes this week. Verse 21, treasuring and trusting. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. Note that, all his house. But Hannah did not go up. And all of a sudden we're like, oh man, I'm getting nervous. Why why is she not going up? She said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah is tuning into this too. He says, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him only... May the Lord establish his word. Keep your vow, is what he's saying. You made a vow. This was no small thing. And it is important that the word that you spoke be established by God in your heart that you would satisfy it and fulfill it. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. That would have likely been around between the ages of three, four, at at most five, somewhere in there. These are treasured years. I want you to picture a barren woman's love for a child, a son God has given. Just imagine a quiet home. Finally, her rival and all the little cohort, they're gone. No one's there mocking her. It's quiet. She is with her father God and her child, her son and she is nursing, and the treasure of those moments. Now, here's the challenge. Will she put more treasure and value on her child, on her son, than she will on God? Because, oh, how easy it is to reverse the giver and the gift. And the idolatry is waiting in that moment. That's what happened at the golden calf. They looted the Egyptians and hauled off all of their gold. And then they're like, this gold is great. We should make something of it. And here comes the golden calf. All of a sudden, they're bowing down to the gift and not the giver. And so, Hannah, don't do that, right? That's what we, in this, as we moved, it's like, don't do that, Hannah. Treasure the gift because you treasure the giver all the more. Will she keep her vow to Yahweh? When she had weaned him, she took him up with her. Yes, it's good. Along with a three-year-old bull and an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Now, just to, just to got to say this, especially in the coming weeks when you realize more about Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, these depraved sons. You, you, you picture being a mom and dropping off your three or four-year-old son to be under the watch care of the likes of those dudes? That is no small act of faith and obedience. The child was young. 
Then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli and, he, and she said, Oh my Lord, not capital Lord, not Yahweh, but in reference to the high priest. Oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed and the Lord, Yahweh, has granted me my petition that I made to him. She's celebrating. Who is she celebrating? Herself? No. The God who heard and answered. She gives praise to God. Therefore, she says, I have lent him or dedicated him, more literally, to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent, dedicated to the Lord. And he worshiped there, uh, worshiped the Lord there. He, that is Samuel, worshiped the Lord there. This is amazing. What a commitment. What follow through. By God's grace, the story ends well. It's an amazing answer to prayer. A kindness and grace of God. Persevering, trusting, treasuring the one who is the giver above the gift. And obeying. Obeying him as the Lord of hosts. So our response this morning, just a few things. Just just want to draw attention to this. Prayer and providence, they go hand in hand. I often am confounded when, when people ask, if God is sovereign, why do we pray? I, I'm like, I if he's not, why would we pray? I, I don't even get it. How do you pray to a God who's not sovereign? Who's up there just like, well, I'd like to help. but I, I mean, I mean well, but I can't really do anything to change this situation. We pray to a God who's able, my friends. He can indeed do it, and he has ordained the very words that we are praying so that he can accomplish his good and ordained purpose from of old. So pray, my friends, pray. Pray to a God who can answer prayer. He's never bound. He's not limited. We pray because he is the Lord of hosts. And remember, in the midst of the trial, God is at work. Oh, if you were to ask Hannah, like the 14th year of her barrenness, what, what is God doing? She probably had no idea. At that point, you, get, you don't know. Most often we don't know. There are rare glimpses sometimes in our lives as we look back on dark and challenging chapters and we can be like, oh, I see what you were doing, Lord, at least in part. Most often in this life, we can't see it. We don't know. But he's at work. And God is able to employ pain and, and trials and dark days to bring about the good that he ordains. He uses what he hates at times to accomplish what he loves. We can't always see how it all works out. In fact, I guarantee you this. At this point, Hannah has no idea how significant her son will be in the redemptive history of God. She has no idea of that. But she prayed. She prayed and she trusted and she waited. And then she obeyed. And she treasured the Lord. So, May we, like Hannah, do the same. Your will be done, O God. 
to trust him. You're the all-wise God, not me. I don't see everything. You see it all. And I'm going to look to you. I'm going to run to you. And I'm going to trust you. So, Good Shepherd Bible Church, run to Jesus Christ. Is he your Lord and Savior today? If he isn't, then today, turn from your sins. Repent. Run to him. Be found in him. Be saved today. Put all of your hope in him. Pour out your heart to him. Treasure him. Rest in him. Trust him. And obey him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being the Lord of hosts. Yahweh Sabaoth is your name. You are sovereign not only in the heavens, but in every way on this earth. You are sovereign over the womb. You are sovereign, as we saw in the victory of our Savior, you're sovereign over the tomb. You are sovereign today in every single person's life in this room. And we delight in your rule, your reign, your purposeful sovereignty, your providence. Your wisdom is perfect. Your plan is of old. And you bring to pass that which you have ordained today. Mm. Thank you, Lord, that you work for good. You bring about all things for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Lord, that includes trials and pain and heartache and loss. And, and there's never a time when we were, would find any warrant to turn away from you. Lord, we look to you. Stir us to run to you. Establish your word, O Lord, in our hearts. That our faith may grow like Hannah to cling to you when we're at our very end. Be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.